All right. Well, um, we have we have spent time uh, so far this morning, which is right, um, trying to see the greatness of God. Um, some of the songs we sang were talking about how He is the Ancient of Days. He's just far above everyone and everything. And that's right. Those are the kinds of songs we want to sing to him. As we enter his word, we're going to talk about some lofty things as well. But I want to get um, here from the from kind of the beginning, I want to get really practical. Okay, I want to ask a question that um, is, is kind of, um, you know, in, in the trenches question. It's a very common question. If you've lived for more than 10 or 12 or 15 years, you've probably asked this question yourself. And I want to ask it of us and get us thinking about it as we turn our attention to God's word. And here's the question. Here's the question. Why, why is life hard? Have, have you asked that? You've probably all asked that at one point or another. Why is life hard? Or, or you're facing some circumstance and you think, why is this thing so hard? Um, maybe that's in your parenting. Maybe that's in your work life. Maybe it's in your school studies. Maybe it's in relating to your parents as a child. Um, all of these things we tend to ask, why is life hard? You see, we every day experience a variety of hardship or difficulty or trouble or problems across so many aspects of life. We experience difficulty at work. We experience difficulty at home. We face relational troubles. We face financial troubles. We face health troubles. We, the simple task of, of keeping up our homes is it not just um, an endless to-do list. You fix one problem and there are just five more waiting for you, Right? Um, that's just the way life seems to go. And I want to ask this morning, why? Why is it that way? Because biblically, if we believe that a perfect God created the world, and, and we read six times over him looking on his creation and saying, this is good, this is good, this is good. He's not saying this falls apart sometimes or this is difficult. No, he's saying this is good. Well, if he created the world that way, why is our life in that world so difficult? And... Because it's December 17th and we're in the middle of Advent, I'll, I'll ask a second question. It's, does Christmas have anything to do with that? D- does the story of Jesus' Advent here on planet Earth have anything to do with that day-in, day-out difficulty that you and I experience? Now, when we turn to the Bible with these questions in mind, the answer actually becomes very clear very quickly, almost from page one. And here's kind of the short answer that we're really going to take time and unpack this morning. Why is life hard? Well, it's because you and I now live under the very curse of God. That is why life is so hard. The perfect God who created the world and pronounced it good then cursed the world. And that curse is the source, I would say, of the majority of the difficulty that you experience in life. Oh, there are other sources of difficulty, for sure. Um, There are um, difficulties when we make bad decisions, when we sin against God. There are natural consequences that cause additional difficulty. But I think if if we look at the whole picture, that's only part of the whole. And what we see is that the, in the whole picture, you and I live every day under a curse of judgment that God uttered to our very first parents thousands of years ago. Christmas time is not just a temporal reprieve where we um, take some extra time off work and we eat some extra good food, and we spend time maybe around the people we love, we get to do all those things. That is not the main point of Christmas. The main point of Christmas is that it celebrates the coming of the one man who can and will bring this curse to an end. And so with with that kind of framework in mind, I want you to hear from four different texts this morning. We're going to hear from four different readings on this topic from the pages of Scripture. 
Um, they're going to come kind of fast, but we'll spend time unpacking them. Um, so first, Rob is going to come and read um, some sections from Genesis 2 and 3, and this really sets the stage. This will be um, kind of where we spend the most time this morning, because these passages tell of the events leading up to God's curse on the creation, and then the recount of him actually giving the curse itself. We'll then jump way forward to Luke chapter 2, which is uh, the account of an unusual message that God sends to a group of lowly shepherds. And what you're going to hear is it's a message of peace, not of curse. So something has changed, and, and this message comes in the context of, of this baby being born in the next town over. So we'll hear that. From Romans chapter 8, we'll hear how God's grand design and purpose includes the giving and the release of this curse. It's all bound up in what's, what uh, Paul refers to as the freedom of the children of God. And then we'll kind of see the end of the story, so to speak, from Revelation 21, which gives us a, a preview of what that freedom looks like, this new heavens, new earth that God will create. And you'll hear these words, no longer will there be anything accursed in them. And so we see the end of the curse. So let's listen. Let's turn our attention now to God's word. And readers, would you please come forward to read for us? Genesis 2, 15 to 17. Yahweh God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then chapter 3, starting in the second half of verse 11. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. Luke 2, 8-14 through 14. <clears throat> And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Romans eight eighteen through 21 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Revelation 22, 1 through 3. 
Then the angels showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street to the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of the life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be sent, will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Well, if you have a Bible, uh, I invite you to open to the first page, Genesis uh, chapter 1. Uh, because as we, as we talk through uh, what we just heard read, I want you to see uh, for yourself with your own eyes how these first few chapters unfold and what they mean for us as we, as we talk about um, just the reality of God's curse. Uh, we're not going to read chapters 1 and 2, but if you just scan them over with your eyes, what you'll find in these two chapters are two uh, creation narratives. Um, the, the first in chapter 1 is kind of the 10,000-foot uh, view, uh, universe-wide, uh, kind of God-architecting creation um, from the, the stars and moon and sun to the plants to different kinds of animals, eventually humankind. But it's this kind of broad, high-level view of creation. And then chapter 2, if you just kind of scan over chapter 2, we, we realize that, that we're zooming in now on creation. Um, we're, we're out of that 10,000-foot view. We're getting very specific, very personal in a very specific place called Eden with specific people named Adam and Eve. These are the first people that God forms and places in the earth. God gives Adam and Eve everything in this lush garden called Eden. Um, Eden was a place filled with uh, life, abundance, fruit. Uh, there was plenty of water, which um, if you think of the Near East, like water is a big deal. We're told that there's three rivers coming from this garden. There's mist watering the plants. So there's just lots of life and abundance. And as God plants Adam and Eve in this garden, um, he gives them everything in the garden to care for, and he gives them every fruit tree for food except one. There's one. So note that out of, out of all of this rich abundance, plenty everywhere you could see, he's like, hey guys, there's this one tree. Okay. You see 300, there's one. Don't eat of that one. Okay. Now flip to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, um, I think it's in verse 1, introduces us to a creature called the serpent. And we're not told much about the serpent. We know um, he's a different kind of serpent. He speaks, and uh, Adam and Eve can understand him. Um, but we are told there in verse 1 that he is, quote, more crafty than any other beast of the field that God has made. And as this serpent begins dialoguing with Eve, the result is that Adam and Eve both eat from that one tree among many that God told them not to eat, that was forbidden. And this is known as the first human sin. This is how sin enters the world. Now, in response, God comes to the garden looking for the man. And when God finds Adam and Eve and hears what they've done, he curses, and this is what we read, he curses the serpent the woman, and the man in that order. And this is the, the curse, the same curse that we live under to this day. And this is a main source of all of those hardships and difficulties and problems you and I still face. Okay? Do, do, do you see that? Do, you, do we see the progression of these first few chapters in, in the Bible? Now, before we talk about the curse in more detail, I just want to be clear about a distinction we see here. And it's the distinction between sin, on the one hand, and curse, on the other. And the reason I want to make this distinction is I, I realized in, in thinking and, and planning to, to preach to you today that in my mind, sometimes we talk about living in a fallen world and those things blur, and they kind of become one thing, this fallen world idea. But what we see here in Genesis is there are two distinct events. Um, let's first talk about sin. 
So Adam and Eve, they chose to eat that fruit from that one tree God had forbidden. And if you've, uh, maybe you've wondered this yourself, or certainly if you've talked to uh, friends who uh, perhaps are unbelievers, there's kind of this instant objection of like, well, it's fruit, right? Like, why is fruit a big deal? Why is this thing sin? Um, it, it's food, right? It was, it, it was made to be eaten. It could be eaten. That's what fruit is. And so they eat it. Why does this send things all topsy-turvy in Genesis 3? What's the big deal with eating this fruit? And, and I think dealing with this objection is really helpful because what it helps us do is it helps us define what sin is and what sin isn't. You see, Adam and Eve's sin, I think, actually had very little to do with that piece of fruit. In fact, the serpent's deception was successful because, if you read his words, he got them to focus almost exclusively on the fruit. And they saw how good it was and what it could give them. And so they decided to eat. What Adam and Eve forgot or too easily dismissed was that the fruit was forbidden by the all-good, all-wise God who created them. They thought too much about the fruit and too little of God. Do you see that? And so eating the fruit was sinful because in eating, Adam and Eve judged God as unworthy of their trust, insufficient in his provision, lacking in his love. Do you see that going on as they're taking the bite of the fruit? It's not really about the fruit so much as it is about what does this say about God? And so there they stood, surrounded by God's abundant provision in this lush garden paradise. And they thought, hey, we'll be better off if we call the shots. And so they went their own way. And so that's what sin is. Sin judges God as deficient, and he, it thinks we will go better if we call the shots instead of him. And so because of that, sin is usurping God of his authority. It's saying, I'm going to make the decision, not you. That's what sin is. Now, from this one act of eating this fruit, of judging God to be deficient, of going their own way, humanity would never be the same. And we see this almost instantly. Adam and Eve's nature was immediately darkened by sin. What do they do? Like very next sentence, what do they do? Well, they experience insecurity one to another, and that's why they hide their nakedness. They'd never known what it was to be insecure. And here they are blushing before one another. They seek to hide their wrongdoing as they hide from God. And then when God finds them, what do they do? Well, they shift blame. Did you, did you hear that from Adam? Oh, it was the woman that you gave me, God. So he's blame shifting two directions at once. I mean, you'd think that takes practice, and it doesn't take any practice at all. He's a natural blame shifter now. And Eve does the same thing. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. They aren't coming before God saying, we're so sorry that we doubted you. We're so sorry that we disobeyed you. We're so sorry... We see insecurity, hiding, blame shifting. And, and for, for those among us here this morning, to who is that a foreign concept, right? We all do the same thing, do we not? We've all blame shifted, I'm sure. We all tend to, the, the number of times I've tried to minimize my own wrongdoing is more than I can count. And don't, aren't we all plagued by, in some measure, some sense of insecurity that we are not good enough, that we, we can't actually um, be known as we are, or people might judge us or, or see us as wanting? And so this is what sin does. And it affects us in the same way that it affects Adam and Eve because we've inherited their sin nature. And so we see in Genesis 3, humanity falling and being darkened, now sinning because of how they've gone their own way, and they impart to their children that same nature, that same tendency to go our own way. That's sin. We are all sinners. We know it well. Now let's talk about the curse. The curse was handed down by God in response that sin. Okay, so right off the bat, we see two distinctives, right? 
between sin and the curse. There's a distinctive of order and actor. Sin comes first at the hands of Adam and Eve. The curse comes second at the hand of God. Okay? Are are we clear on that? And so when we talk about the curse, we're not talking about the effects of simply living in a sinful world. That would be more the, the first, right? That's what Adam and Eve did. They subjected the world to sin. When we talk about the curse, we're talking about the negative effects that God introduced into the world in response to that sin. The the forces that God put into the world because man and woman had sinned. That might sound like we're splitting hairs, but I think that distinction is going to help us a lot a little later in our time together reflecting on this verse. So for now, let's just... Make sure we're clear in our minds, Adam and Eve sinned first, then in response to that, God hands down the curse. Those are two separate events. Okay, now let's look at what is this curse? What is it that God brings into the world in response to sin? In what ways does God make Adam and Eve's life difficult because of their sin? So we'll take it in order. God speaks first to the serpent, then to Eve, then to Adam. To the serpent, God curses the serpent, quote, above all beasts of the field. Now, that wording should sound familiar because that's how the serpent is introduced. He's introduced as more crafty than any other beast of the field. And so the fact that snakes today slither on their bellies and eat rodents is meant to remind us of the humiliation there in Eden. The most crafty has become the most cursed. Okay, so we see just like biologically in our world, the effect of that curse. God then also talks to the serpent about enmity that he's going to put between the offspring of the snake and the offspring of the woman. Now, reading ancient biblical literature, what what isn't being articulated here is just that people and snakes won't live in harmony. Uh, That's not what's going on here. What's going on is that God is saying that there will be human and spiritual forces that take up the serpent's treachery and trickery, and those will be opposed to the people of God who are trying to live for God and live righteously before him. And I think we see this play out. If you're familiar with the story of Genesis, we see this play out one generation later where Cain Adam and Eve's first son rises up, um, giving into the sin of the serpent to kill his brother Abel, who is accepted by God. And so right off the bat, we see this opposition between the people of the snake and the people of God. Furthermore, God says here in Genesis 3 to the serpent, he says um, that one day an offspring of the woman would deal the serpent a decisive defeat. You remember reading that? You will bruise his heel, but he will bruise, or, or New Testament writers say, crush your head. And so in other words, God is, is saying to the serpent, hey, listen, serpent crusher is coming. He's on his way, and I will make him come. This is God's curse to the serpent. God's curse toward Eve results in in two things. First, she'll have pain in childbearing. Um, Now, this might sound primitive to our modern ears. We we moderns today are kind of sensitive to the notion of associating women with only childbearing. Um, I don't think that's what the Bible is getting at at all. There are many good things that women do. There are many uh, good purposes for women being on planet Earth, and I'm so grateful for them. But there is one really, really, really important job that women do that no man can do, and that is giving birth to a baby, right? Um, as much as men may want or try, it is something that we will never do. And so what God is doing as he curses Eve in childbearing is he's taking one of the core distinctions of her being and saying, you will experience pain here. And we today only need to talk to women who have given birth, right? And they will tell you it is one of the most excruciating types of physical pain they have ever experienced. The curse still touches us today. And if you talk to women or couples who struggle with um, 
miscarriage or infertility, that emotional pain runs almost just as deep. There is pain in bringing forth children today. And that is part of God's curse. It is part of his response to human sin. The second aspect of the curse upon Eve is strife within her marital relationship. God says, your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And so we see here it's God's doing that mixes marital bliss with marital strife. As the humans went their own way from God, now their relationship will include a battle of the wills, will it not? She will want her way, but he will ultimately rule. I don't think this is God's approval of male-dominated societies or certainly not abuse of women or belittling of women, which is just tragically common in human history. I think it does explain why that is tragically common among human history. Because now, instead of working together, man and woman are pitted together. They experience um, futility or struggle in their most um, intimate bond together. And so gender relations, marital relationships will be hard because of the curse. They will not come easy. We probably all, um, if, if you're married or if you've talked to someone who's, who's married, we experience this every day, right? Um, people talk about one of the hardest and yet most important things in marriage is having good communication. Why is that hard? <laughs> Why? I mean, you think about how easy it is to speak, how easy it is to send an email, how easy it is, like communication is something we do. Why is communication in marriage so difficult? Because of the curse. There is difficulty within that relationship that God put there. It is part of God's response to human sin. And so those two things are God's curse upon the woman. Pain and childbearing, difficulty in marriage relationship. Let's look at Adam. God's curse toward Adam largely had to do with his job, his vocation. God put Adam in the garden to work and keep it. And, and, you know, as we describe that garden, I imagine that was a pretty easy job, right? This garden practically took care of itself. It gave abundant provision of food. Almost anything you could want was there. Now, no longer. God curses the ground. And now Adam would find even feeding himself and his family full of difficulty and pain. Thorns and thistles would make cultivating those fruit trees difficult. He would now labor, quote, by the sweat of his face to eat his bread. And ultimately, Adam, who was the one taken out of the earth, would return to it in in death. Now, perhaps at face value, we look at those words recorded in Genesis 3, and we wonder, well, how does that apply to me? I'm I'm not a gardener. I, I, I don't make my own bread. Like, how does this apply? But consider what God's doing here. He is saying that daily sustenance will no longer come easy for us. And so it doesn't matter if you're a gardener or a doctor or a businessman or a teacher or a musician. It doesn't matter what our vocation is. The point is that creation, God's creation, now no longer works with us toward those things. It actually works against us. And so this is why business plans fail. This is why our homes and buildings need so much maintenance. It's why our bodies themselves degrade and crumble. It's why hurricanes flood cities, why seven-story apartment buildings in the Bronx crumble. It's why viruses like AIDS and COVID can bring our society to their knees. That is not part of God's good, 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 very good design. Something else happened. Something else has introduced this difficulty into his world. It was the curse. So we're we're kind of spending a lot of time here because, brothers and sisters, I want you to be able to imagine just how many ways this curse from Genesis 3 impacts your day-to-day life. 
you and I, we, we kind of take it for granted that life is hard, right? I mean, how many times do people say, well, it just is what it is, like, this is the way life is. No, this is not the way life should be. This is not the original design by God. This is not the way this world should operate. Something happened, and I want you to see and feel the weight of the idea that we live under God's curse. It is sweeping and it is devastating. It touches us everywhere we live. It is why life is hard. Now, the reason why I think it's good to separate the act of sin and the act of curse is because of that actor piece, that it is God who brings the curse. And if it is God who brings the curse, we know that God does not do things willy-nilly, right? He's not a God of randomness and chaos. He does things for a purpose. And so what I want us to ask now is, well, why this curse? Like, this isn't just a parent enraged being like, no, you're not going to have screen time for a week. You know, this is a very deliberate action by a deliberate God in response to a deliberate act of sin. So why is he doing this? What is the purpose? Well, I think we see two purposes of God in giving the curse. First, the curse is God's judgment, right? Uh, We remember that sin is treason against God. It is when the creature decides to go their own way instead of submit to the creator. And God being just and, and justice, meaning that the punishment fits the crime, he cannot let this crime go unpunished. Right? And so there is a purpose of judgment. The magnitude of the curse, the, the hundreds of ways it impacts us, is meant to register to us the magnitude of human sin against a good God. And so when we find ourselves wondering, why is curse hard? Why, sorry, why is life hard? Part of the answer is because sin is horrifically bad. Because sin is horrifically bad. God wants us to make that connection. But secondly, the curse is not just judgment. It is also God's corrective action in the world. It is not just to punish. It is also to teach. And so if we think about even our own uh, penal system, so many of our prisons are referred to as correctional facilities, right? Right? And what that means is that people aren't just going there to pay their time, do their time. They're going there to try to um, be educated or learn in some way what does it mean to be a law-abiding citizen so that when they come out, there is some uh, difference in their life than when they went in. I think that's a really good illustration of what's going on here as God gives the curse. The curse in Genesis 3 operates in a similar way. It's intended to correct us. Now, what is it trying to correct? Well, if you were a Christian here this morning, think back on your life. And if you've talked to other Christians, think about what you've heard from their lives. Does not God often use the painful and the hard circumstances to draw people to himself? Is that not true? I mean, how many people do you know got saved when work was good and finances were good and they were like on some European vacation with their family? How often does that happen? It doesn't, right? It's the tragedy or the depression or the cancer or the relational difficulties that often leave us feeling our need for God. Now, let me ask you, How did those hard things that make you feel your need for God, how did they come into your life? God put them there when he handed down this curse. Do you see that? The hard things that make us feel our need for God were put there by God here in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve once lived in this paradise surrounded by God's provision and abundance, and they abandoned him. And so God knew that if Adam and Eve were completely separated from him, they would face a much 
worse fate than the curse. They would face hell forever. Hell is the absence of everything good in God forever. And it is horrific. We, we sometimes use the phrase hell on earth. If we could see hell, we wouldn't be able to fathom what that is. Okay, the worst experience here does not hold a candle to where sin left unchecked will land us. Okay? So in his mercy, God put Adam and Eve and all of their descendants down to us today in a world wrecked by pain. The curse is meant to correct our God abandonment, which will lead to hell if left unchecked. The curse is meant to help us feel. And I don't say this lightly because sometimes we feel it with just agonizing clarity. Our need for God. That is what Adam and Eve did not feel in the garden as they looked at that fruit. They did not feel their need for God. And so God put us in a world where we would every day, if we have eyes to see, feel our need for God. The hardship, the trouble, the pain that you experience every day is put there by God to drive you away from going your own way and toward his open arms. And so, brothers and sisters, we find that this is a huge reason for why our life is hard. Life is hard to awaken us to our need for God. And so the next time you're facing that thing that makes you wonder, why why is this so hard? And there might be tears. There might be anguish. Remember, it is hard to drive you to your good, merciful, kind, loving God. That's why it's hard. This is the curse that we find in Genesis 3. It's sweeping, devastating, but it has such a good purpose. Now, at this point, perhaps we're wondering... What does all this have to do with Christmas? That's a great question. (laughs) Let's move forward in history from ancient Eden to a first century hillside. And I want you to imagine in your minds being shepherds on this hillside. It doesn't matter how much you know of shepherds. Just know it's not what you see in the children's books. Like, they're not clean and cute and having a good time out there. I mean, this was like grunt work, okay? So these shepherds are out here on this hill, and man, they know the difficulty of life. They are tired. They are dirty. They are smelly. They've got their sheep by them. Their their sheep are tired and dirty and smelly. And they're out there in the elements on this hillside. And all of a sudden, they see a blindingly bright light as a, an angel first speaks to them. And then this multitude of angels shows up. And what these angels say is glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. There's the key word, peace among those whom he is pleased. Peace or or blessing is the opposite of curse. Okay? And so here are God's messengers. Normally, God's messengers show up like one at a time. Okay, so when we see a whole bunch of them, that should arrest our attention. And we see this multitude, we're told, of angels saying, peace. This is a shift in the biblical story. Huge turn. And as these angels proclaim that night that this peace is directly linked to a newborn baby in the next town over laying in a manger. Now, again, we see some contrast. Okay, so we see contrast between peace and blessings and shepherds. Shepherds were this like dirty blue collar, bottom of the 
barrel kind of job. Peace because of this baby laying in a manger. So there again, we see kind of hardship of life, toil. And yet through this baby, there's peace. And as the angels proclaimed that night, the arrival of this baby in the manger meant peace and blessing that had not been known since Eden. Okay? Now, if you've been in the church or if you've been a Christian for a while, that probably means that you are very familiar with Bible stories, particularly the Bible stories about Jesus. And so those stories may not hit you um, as they would if you saw them with your own eyes and saw the splendor of what was happening. Because as this baby in the manger grew up, we see the beginning of the end of God's curse, and we see it very clearly. Like, it is not hidden. It is out in front happening before our eyes. So consider I have seven ways that just I could think of. There are probably more. Here are seven ways to consider how Jesus, in his life, displays the beginning of and the end of the curse. One, Jesus was steadfast in the face of Satan's deceptions. He met that serpent head on and won. So Adam and Eve fell after a single temptation in a lush garden. Jesus faced, according to Luke chapter 4, 40 days of temptation in the desert while he was fasting. Okay? We're just talking like worlds apart from Adam and Eve. And in, in, in the account of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, it's the man and woman who flee. They're kicked out of the garden. When Satan comes to Jesus, it's Satan who packs his bags and goes. He leaves Jesus, okay? So Jesus is steadfast in the face of the serpent's deceptions. Two, Jesus repeatedly reverses the effects of disease and death. And so it's the curse that made our bodies frail, susceptible to illness, um, introduces death into the world. But with only a touch from Jesus, the blind saw, the deaf heard, the lame walked, the sick were healed, the dead were raised. Do you see that reversal of the curse? Thirdly, Jesus effortlessly fed thousands with only a few loaves and fish. This miracle is, is one of those things where as a kid, I just heard and I was like, yeah, okay, that's kind of a cute story. No, there's significant relevance here. Um, remember what God said to Adam, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. And here's Jesus showing up. He's got like a few loaves. Yeah, I'll make bread for 5,000 people. No problem. Not a sweat of drop on his breath. Sweat of, drop of sweat on his uh, brow, right? It's like effortless. He prays and it's like, yeah, guys, go do it. And it's done. Four, Jesus exercises authority over natural disasters. I mean, the, the disciples thought he was crazy because he like slept during storms that scared them silly. Uh, he walked on the water faster than they could row. He stilled the terrifying storm with merely a word, peace, be still, and it, it's still, right? And so all of these um, chaotic aspects of creation brought in by the curse, Jesus is not bothered by, has authority over, he's just above them, like no problem. Five, Jesus' plans always come to fruition exactly the way he intended this one blows my mind because we probably all enter the standard day, right? With like a to-do list of, it doesn't matter if it's five things or 10 things, maybe you get half of them done. And then the things you get done may not last. And the next day you have to do them again. Not so with Jesus. The thorns and thistles of the curse, they never frustrated his plans. What he said, he did. What he planned, happened. In particular, the church he builds and establishes will never crumble and falter. It prevails even against the gates of hell. Six, Jesus perfectly loves his bride, the church. And we heard those words, your desire shall be for him and he will rule over you. But what do we see in Jesus? Well, we're told in Ephesians 5.25 that he 
loved his bride, the church, and gave himself up for her. And that is a direct connection to how his followers should think of their marital relationships. Lay down your life. Give yourself up for her. New paradigm. Last, seven. Jesus conquered death itself in his resurrection. The words, to dust you shall return, simply have no claim over him. Now, many people can choose to give up their life for a good cause. And I think broadly in our society, that's kind of how Jesus is painted. He's this like kind of nice guy who, who died for a good reason. <laughs> that's not what happened, right? It just isn't. Many people can give up their lives for a good cause. Only Jesus is the one who says, I will lay down my life for my sheep and I will take it back up again. No one else can say that. And it's because he's conquered the curse. He is the beginning of the end of the curse. Jesus, in his, what we have recorded of him in the Gospels, in his present day ruling and reigning, displays this beautiful, wonderful alternative to living under God's curse. It's, it's almost like Jesus is a, a portable precurse Eden. Like wherever he goes, this abundance and love and life just flourishes. And he is the beginning of the end of the curse, not just for himself, but for any who call upon his name. Galatians 3.13 says that Jesus redeemed us from the curse by, quote, becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So not only does Jesus demonstrate that living outside the curse is possible, he actually opens up the way for people who are presently under the curse to experience its end. This is what Romans 8 means when it says the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now, him who subjected it is God. Remember that. This isn't talking about Adam. It's not talking about Satan. It's talking about God. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. There's hope, and that hope is the Freedom of the children of God. Meaning the hope is that Jesus would die, be raised, offer salvation. His people would be joined to him and experience a freedom in him from this devastating worldwide curse. It's in him that the people of God experience freedom from the curse. In the final pages of the Bible, we read about this new heavens and new earth that Jesus will usher in when he returns. And we're told what? No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. That's the end game. That's where everything is headed. This is the future for everyone who trusts in Jesus. Just as the curse came as a result of sin, so freedom from the curse comes as a result of being rescued from sin. And so we see that those who are rescued from sin are ultimately rescued from the curse. And so, friends, this is why faith in Christ is just so vital. Because if you and I, if we don't turn toward Jesus, if we only persist in going our own way, then the curse, it it will not give way to that freedom. It will give way to that greater judgment of hell. And so only Jesus can rescue sinners like us from sin. Only Jesus can give us new hearts that are predisposed to move toward God instead of away from him. Only Jesus can give us new inner life, though our outer bodies may waste away under the curse. Redemption from sin and freedom from curse are only found when we cast ourselves in faith upon him. When we say to him, you are my all in all. You are my king. You are the savior that I need. Earlier we read from Romans how the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing to the future glory that we one day will see. That's not the only way or the only time that the apostle Paul talked like that. Let me read you a, a very similar passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I, I want you to pause before I read this and think about something 
hard in your past or your present, or maybe it's even a fear that you have for your future, the thing that would prompt you to ask, why is life hard? I want you to think about that thing, okay? And hear the words of the Apostle Paul. For this light momentary affliction, now that thing does not seem light. But listen to where he goes. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You see, brothers and sisters, even in the face of those things that make us think, why is this so hard? We see the beginning of the end of the curse in Jesus. In him, we begin to taste this, the full freedom that will one day be brought to all of his people. And until then, whatever pain or sadness or sorrow we experience in this life, it is meant to prompt us to look up, not to the pain and hardship that we see, but to the ruling and reigning Savior who loves us to the point that he would put down his life for us and die for us. He may be unseen, but he is the greater reality, and he is the one who will get you through that thing that you wonder, why is this so hard? That is the cycle that the curse was meant to do. That is how redemption happens in this world until this world is remade. The hard things press us to God. They push us to Christ because in him we have so many promises and so much grace purchased and he is faithful to deliver. Amen? And so may the hardship of life send us with hope and even joy into his arms the Savior who loves us, until he comes again and brings a full end to the curse that we now live under. Would you pray with me now?